Revelation chapter 3, looking at the letter to the church in Laodicea. It's the seventh of these seven letters. It's uh, one of the darker letters that's there. In fact, it might be the darkest letter that's there because of the circumstances that we see within it. Beginning at verse 14, Jesus says to John and to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. These letters all have some, some common elements to them. Five of them have commendations. There's no commendation here. Two of the letters to Smyrna and Philadelphia have statements of comfort and exhortation. There's no comfort here. There's only rebuke. The rebuke comes from the Lord Jesus. His description as we see it is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Amen means truly. When we end our prayers with amen, <coughs> the sense is that we're saying, Lord, here it is. This is as honest as I can be. So be it. Your will be done. But Jesus, 25 times in the Gospel of John, begins statements by saying, truly, truly, literally, amen, amen. And he's not saying, so be it, so be it. He's saying, this is confirmed. This is real. This is true. I validate this. Jesus Christ as the amen is the validation of everything that God says and does. Not only because he personally says, this has my stamp of approval, but because he's the one who brings these things to pass. He's the one who brings about the glory of God. So his first statement to the Laodicean church is, I am the one who validates everything God has ever said. And so there's no escaping. There, there's, no, there, there's no loophole that allows you to get away from what the Father has said. He says he's the faithful and true witness. Um, he's a faithful and true witness of the revelation given to him by the Father. Revelation 1.1 tells us the name of this book. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Jesus says, I am a faithful and true witness of everything God has given me to declare to you. Nothing that, that he gave me changed before I, I gave it to you. When the Father says, 
um, all things are being done for his glory, I'm telling you all things are being done for his glory. We can't expect Jesus to be a, a revisionist judge who takes the law and reworks it and ignores it. He's going to do what the Father wants him to do. And then third, Jesus is the beginning of God's creation. It's similar to the phrase firstborn of all creation in Colossians 1.15. It doesn't mean that Jesus is the first one created or made. It means that creation began with his work. John 1.3 says, By him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that was made. So it's really clear that Jesus is creator. Uh, Hebrews 1 says that through him he made all things. In fact, the first thing that we actually see God do, there's a declaration in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and, with, and, and empty, and the Holy Spirit uh, brooded over over the surface of the earth. By the way, can I say this? That word is such a fantastic word in the Hebrew language because the Holy Spirit brooding doesn't mean the Holy Spirit's going, this is not what I wanted to do. It's the Holy Spirit brooding as a mother hen broods over her chicks. Creation's not done, and the Spirit of God is there at that first moment protecting and, and, and conserving what God has done. And then the next, for, the next thing we see happen is God speaks. Let there be light. And there was light. Boom. Not let there be light and, oh, there's a light bulb and there's a lamp. It's let there be light and light exists. Amazing. It's not until several days later that the sun and the moon are created, which means God put the light from the sun coming to us before he put the sun behind it. He doesn't need a source for light. He just creates light, and then he goes, oh, they're probably going to freak out over this. Let's put something there so it looks like. Jesus is the beginning of God's creation. So Jesus came to confirm God's glory and purpose in creation. He bears perfect witness of God's glory and purpose. And being God, he bears the full authority of the creator. This should get their attention in the Laodicean church. I don't know if it did. He begins immediately with a rebuke in verses 15 and 16. And in 17, he explains the rebuke. He says in 15 and 16, I know your works. I know that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot because you're not hot or cold, but instead you're lukewarm. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Now, one of the common kind of surface ways of looking at this is to say hot means deeply in love and devoted to the Lord Jesus, and cold means being completely apathetic, and lukewarm being then someplace in between. And so what Jesus wants is for you to either be passionately in love with him or hate him. But kind of being in the middle, that's unacceptable. Really? Do we really want to say that the Lord Jesus Christ prefers people who hate him to people who have some kind of a relationship with him? That's not biblical. The reality is, is, is that Jesus is speaking of the circumstances of the, uh, of the Laodicean church. Laodicea sits in the Lycus Valley. It, it sits uh, up on a hillside or down at the bottom of the valley, I guess. But it sits in the Lycus Valley. Six miles north of Laodicea is the city of Heropolis. Heropolis was known back then for mineral hot springs. 
Um, and in fact, it's still known today for mineral hot springs. Way back then, people would go there if they had chronic illnesses. Parkinson's would, would, might be one. Or cancer, the various things that cause us to hurt and ache. You've got a time where there's, there's no medicine, there's no surgery, there's no treatments really that make any sense. And sometimes the best thing you can do for Randy's brother is, is go let him soak in a hot spring and soothe those, those bruises and the tired muscles. Hot springs are useful. About 10 miles east of Laodicea is the city of Colossae. Colossae has fresh mountain spring water, ice cold water, year round, right at their, right at their doorstep. It's there all the time. It was known at the time for being exceptionally good tasting. Cold water is useful. Laodicea had no water supply. They had to bring it in. They brought it in through an aqueduct from about six miles south. Now, the aqueduct itself was an engineering marvel. Blocks about the size of that screen were cut and shaped and flattened and then cemented together and then holes bored through them, a hole bored through them to make a massive pipe. And they they brought it six miles. And not only did they bring it six miles, but instead of trying to use some type of a gravity system, um, they, they actually engaged in siphoning. They used hillsides to create suction that would continue to fill the pipe. It's remarkable. It really is. What they tapped into were cold mineral springs or cool mineral springs. So you put that water into a stone pipe that's laying out in the sun, and you take it six miles. By the time the water gets to Laodicea, it's blood temperature. It's 95 to 105 degrees, and it's full of minerals. So it's kind of my illustration of the the day-old Alka-Seltzer water. It's nasty stuff. Hot water is useful. Hot mineral water is useful. If you're aching and you're sore, you, you go lay in the hot mineral water. They would even use it in small doses to, as kind of a medicinal purpose, but you couldn't really survive on it. It would make you sick. Cold water is extremely useful. Not only do we need to be cleansed and we need to be hydrated, but you know, in that time, type, time of, the, of history and in that part of the world when it's so extremely hot everywhere, sometimes your only way of cooling your core temperature was to drink cold water. And so it actually truly became life-saving. But what do you do with lukewarm mineral water? You can't bathe in it. It doesn't soothe anything. You can't drink it and stay healthy for very long. It's, it's going to come out of either end. And so Jesus says, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. The reason he's going to spit them out of their mouth is that while hot water is useful and cold water is useful, lukewarm water is not useful at all. It's useless. And they're useless. They're useless. He would, it's not that he would rather that they hate him than just be kind of partial to him. It's that he says, I wish you had the purpose for which you were created and the purpose that the Lord wants you to be engaged in. Why are they useless? Well, that's verse 17. They're useless because they say, I am rich. I have prospered, and I have need of nothing. When the truth is exactly the opposite. We know, we know what rich means. Rich means materially wealthy. In saying I have prospered, it means I have made myself wealthy. It means that they have personally achieved. They're taking credit for their own wealth. This is earned wealth rather than inherited wealth. 
And then they say, so I need nothing. I, I have the money to buy everything I could need, and if I don't, I have the capacity to get more money. And so I need nothing. Now, pride in general is a terrible thing. Pride in general is a terrible thing. The Lord says to Satan in Isaiah, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, here's the pride of Satan, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high God. But the reality is you're brought down to Shoal, to the far reaches of the pit. Pride goes before the fall. There's all kinds of statements in Scripture about human pride. Now, from a human point of view, we can understand certain pride. Alexander the Great conquered uh, the, the better part of the known world before he was 30 years old. He committed suicide, by the way, because he didn't think that there was anything more to conquer. We can understand the pride of Muhammad Ali. We can understand the pride of the Chicago Cubs. We can even understand the pride of Donald Trump. Whatever you think of him, he won. However he accomplished it, he won. So it's, it, pride is terrible even when there's a reason for it. But there's no reason here. The Laodiceans have no reason to be proud. I am rich, I have prospered, I have need of nothing. But the truth is they're wretched, pitiable, blind, uh, poor, blind, and naked. Wretched means miserable, distressed. Pitiable refers to the, the, the response of others when they see him. If you follow the news at all, some of you do, uh, a month or so ago, two 13-month-old boys were separated. They were conjoined. They were joined at the top of their heads. They'd been in the hospital for months. The surgeons had placed uh, inflation kind of devices underneath their scalps and slowly inflated it to stretch the skin and to prompt more skin to grow so that when they separated them, they would have enough skin to cover. And so the article I read this week had a picture of the two boys laying their head to head on their backs in the bed, and then a picture of the mother holding her 13-month-old for the first time. That makes my eyes prickle. That looking at those pictures kind of gives me a tight feeling in my stomach. That's pity. That's what pity feels like. If, if you see that kind of harm come to somebody, or you see that kind of suffering, and you have that response of kind of tension and sadness and a little bit of bad feeling in your stomach, that's the sense of pity. Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, when I look at you, that's how I feel. You think you're all this, and you're, you're in desperate need. They're poor Regardless of their material wealth, they're spiritually impoverished. They have nothing. They're blind. They can't see that they have nothing. And ultimately, they're naked. I think that this is the worst of all. Laodicea was known for its wool industry. The, the high mineral content in the water that they, that they brought in uh, is, is credited with giving the sheep dark black wool. And that black wool was very fine, 
it, it, it was soft, and when it was woven into cloth, the cloth was soft and fine and warm and even shiny. And he says, and yet in spite of that, you're naked. In the New Testament especially, nakedness as a picture means unrighteousness. It means we're without Christ and we're utterly exposed. So he says, you're wretched, you're pitiable, you're poor, you're blind, and you're unrighteous. You're, you're exposed. Do these issues prevent somebody from becoming a Christian? Of course not. It's why we come to Christ. We come to Christ because we're wretched. We come to Christ because we're in such a pathetic position. We come to Christ because we're poor spiritually. We come to Christ because we're blind. We come to Christ because we're unrighteous. And we know it because the Holy Spirit brings that understanding. But they won't acknowledge their need. They won't acknowledge their need. They insist that they don't have a need. And they reject the provision that Jesus has made for them. And I want you to consider this. Our relationship with Jesus Christ is based on our constant need and his constant supply. If we stood and uh, started offering up who Jesus is and what he does for us, we'd hear Lord, Savior pretty quickly, maybe healer, maybe friend. I'm not sure that, that many of us could come up with more than five or six. On Friday, I, I took a little time and I, and I skimmed. I didn't look carefully. Uh, my Bible software allows me to find every reference to Christ, whether he's called Jesus, the Son, the Lamb, Christ, whatever. I just skimmed through that, looking for the things he obviously does for us. I didn't study this out. I didn't go say, okay, so he's doing that even though his name's not there. I just took those things. I found 78 things that he does for us. I randomized those 78 and I pulled out the first 20. These are not the highlights. This is just a random set. Oop. No, go back. He's our shepherd, our great shepherd, our fullness in God, our kindness from God, our resurrection, our foundation, our unchanging Savior, our greatest love, our encouragement, our freedom from the law, our example of faithful suffering, our intercessor, our advocate with the Father, our sinless high priest, our entrance into the holy places, our comfort, our life, our example of love, our righteousness, our light, our security. That's only 20 out of 78 that I found, and I found those quickly. I think I could probably double that list by going through more carefully. How many of us think about everything Jesus does? It's been a huge trend in our time. I remember when the books came out, Your Identity in Christ. You have to know who you are in Christ. I'm all for that. But don't try and figure out who you are in Christ at the expense of knowing who he is for you. See, we need him all the time. The person who says, well, Jesus is Savior. I've, con- I've confessed him as Savior, so took care of that. But look at the constant flow. When we suffer, he's our comfort. When we've sinned, he's our advocate with the Father. When we've sinned, he's our unchanging Savior. On and on it goes. So when the, when the Laodiceans say, I am rich, I have prospered, I have need of nothing, they're saying, I don't need Christ. I don't need him. 
I'll take care of it myself. Thank you very much. And so they're actually rejecting him as he is. They may have thought, I'm doing fine. Jesus can go help people who are actually in need. And not recognizing that they're in such desperate need. And so he calls them useless. And I hope you see the irony that they called him useless. Or I'm sorry, that he called them useless when the fact is they found him useless. If you won't need him and let him fill those needs, you're not going to accomplish much for his kingdom. You're going to advance in your life. You're going to come to the end of life and say, why didn't I do more? And it it won't be because you needed so much. It'll probably be because you needed so little. Because when he serves us, when he gives, he gives wonderfully. So Jesus urges them to change their attitude. He gives them what I've called a prescription. We see this in each one of these letters. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself (coughs) and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent. So regarding true wealth, which is gold refined by fire, Jesus says, fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I love that. He doesn't just say it's the Father's will. He doesn't even say it's the Father's pleasure. He says it's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. True gold, true wealth. Regarding their nakedness, uh, Galatians 3.27 says, for as many as you... For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Sorry about the type of typographical error there. Shouldn't have added the word, second word with. Have put on Christ. That means that we have been dressed in his righteousness alone because we have been baptized by Jesus in the Holy Spirit for the sake of salvation. It's not speaking of water baptism. It's not speaking of infant baptism. It's talking about our reception in heaven our reception with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of our faith, because of his grace and his mercy, we have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. That's what justification by faith really means. He declares us righteous. He takes you wherever you are right now, October whatever it is, 13th. It, it, hey, I'm a month behind. November 13th, 2016. And he takes you all the way to that day of judgment. And he looks at everything in your life. And then he says, there's faith in me alone. The verdict is righteous. And then he brings you back here to live out your life. Which sounds funny, and it confuses a lot of people because they think, well, I I received Christ and I prayed for forgiveness, but then I sinned, so I've lost it. No, because in the future, he has already done that. How is it possible for him to do that? It's like he's got it all videotaped. He just runs to the end end of the tape. Like the two guys are sitting sitting watching the, the, the game on TV late one night. They DVR'd it so that they could watch it, and they're sitting watching it. One of the guys says, I bet that guy's going to catch that ball. 
and he misses the ball. And the other guy says, shouldn't have made that bet. And he goes, I know. I saw it earlier and he missed. I figured this time. That's what justification by faith means. It means that we have been declared righteous, not made righteous. You haven't been made righteous. I haven't been made righteous. We're being taught to be obedient. We're being sanctified. But before we do that, we've already graduated. He's already guaranteed our entrance into heaven. Regarding their blindness, two blind men approached Jesus and cried out for pity. It says in Scripture, Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. That's physical blindness. Spiritual blindness is not knowing what God has done. And the only solution to that is the Spirit of God opening our eyes, opening our hearts, which is why every one of these lessons, the letters ends with, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. You have to have an ear to hear. You have to have a Spirit-anointed ear to hear what the Spirit of God says. There's a statement in, in uh, the book of Psalms, and in the, the Hebrew text it says, You have dug ears for me. It's like we are born with our ear canals completely packed up with trash and garbage like an old well. And the psalmist says, but you cleaned out so that I could understand. That's what the Spirit of God does for us. Now what's the price? Jesus says, I counsel you to buy gold, buy white garments, buy eye salve. What's the price? The price is faith and repentance. Turn away from your sin. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Commit your way to him. And let the Lord direct your paths. What, what an irony that in verse 20, by the way, Jesus says, I stand at the door and I knock. He, he's, I don't mean to demean him in any way. You know that. He's like a door-to-door salesman saying, I have what you need. I'm standing here knocking, offering to give you for the cost of faith. And it goes back, by the way, to Isaiah chapter 55. Come you who are thirsty and buy without money. Just believe God. That's the price of exchange. So the the person who says that they believe in Jesus Christ, but deny the provision and sufficiency of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king, I think all of these things fall into either the prophetic aspect where Jesus declares to us what God has said, Uh, the priestly aspect where he saves us and sanctifies us, or the kingly aspect where he's Lord and directs our lives. I think that they'd all generally stack into those. The person who says, I don't want him as prophet, priest, and king, is treating him as an accessory to life. He's not their clothing. He's just the accessory. Men don't accessorize, but women accessorize. Linda and I went to the... the, uh, Rescue Mission Banquet on Thursday night. She put on a beautiful dress, and she just, gosh, she looks awesome. And she looks perfect. She looks like she's ready to go. And then she puts in the earrings and the necklace. And it's not that there's something inappropriate with the way she's dressed if she doesn't put in earrings and a necklace. It's that they accessorize. Well, that's fine with jewelry, but you can't treat the Lord Jesus as an accessory, as something just to adorn your life. The person who does that is not a Christian. He's the the core of our lives. Well, Jesus makes a promise. We've already kind of touched on one verse. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. 
The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. At verse 20 is, uh, is quite often used as an evangelistic verse. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you'll just open up. And I, I think that's true. But this is a church. It should at least shock us that Jesus is on the outside of a church that has rejected him. And I, I, I think we can say clearly these are not born-again Christians. Something has happened in the generations since the church was planted in Laodicea. They have grown up. They've become so fascinated by their own wealth and their own power and their own privilege that they have utterly forgot Jesus. They don't need him anymore. They don't really want him anymore. It also means, by the way, they're short-sighted. Nothing he has they need because everything they, they need is for today. And they're forgetting that there's an eternity to come. But we gain at least two realities showing us that it's not too late. It is not too late for everybody there. For some it may be, I don't know. The first reason I know it's not too late is that Jesus has positioned himself at the door and he's knocking. Now the sense of, of those two verbs, stand and knock, is that he's standing there and he will be there as long as the church is there. The church may not be there long. Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, in, remember in, in Revelation chapter 2, if you don't take care of this, I will remove your lampstand. I will remove your church. You'll cease to be a church. At this point, he hasn't removed the Laodicean church. They may have a day, they may have a week, they may have a year, we don't know. But for that time, he's standing there at the door, and he's, he's knocking, trying to get their attention. The second thing is that Jesus promises that the one who conquers will sit with him on his throne as he conquered and sat with the Father on the Father's throne. There was so much wealth in Laodicea that people actually essentially bought royal titles. They bought thrones. And Jesus says, you can't buy my throne. You can have it for faith, but you can't have it for money. He offers to share his throne with anyone in Laodicea who puts their faith in him, believe the gospel with the whole heart, and repent of their sin. So there, there's not only hope of salvation, there's hope of full salvation. Do they deserve to be treated as second class? Yes, we all do. But he says, for the sake of faith, if you will put your faith in me, what you've done, all of the hypocrisy makes no never mind. It doesn't make any difference. You'll not only be in heaven, you'll be with me on my throne in heaven. I've heard people try to suggest that if we live fleshly, sinful lives, mediocre lives as Christians, we're, we'll be in heaven, but boy, we're going to be... If you're there at all, you're on the throne. If you're there at all, you're on, a th on the throne. Being on the throne with him is not a reward. Being on the throne with him is part of eternal life. There are other things that are rewards. We're clearly told that he rewards us. If you don't do much, the rewards are low. If you do a lot, the rewards are high. What are the rewards? I'll tell you. I don't know. <laughs> but he's promised him. He doesn't lie. And so there's something there. But it's not too late for them. 
for the sake of faith and repentance, they can receive the fullness of what he has to offer. And so, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? First of all, we have to understand that our, our lives with Christ ebb and flow. He doesn't change, but I change. And some days I'm, uh, boy, some days I bounce out of bed. I can't wait to get to the Word. Other days I drag out of bed. We're all subject to the same ups and downs, to the same swings. He never changes, but we do. And so it's important that we continually preach the gospel to ourselves and that we be reminded of how much we need him as Savior and as Lord and as Comforter and as Encourager and as our access to heaven and as our advocate, as everything that we need. They treated him as an ornament, just an accessory. If we do that, we're in the same position that they were. We're wretched, miserable, in a terrible position. The only thing more, more wretched than somebody who's wretched is somebody who's wretched and has no idea that they're wretched. Because they won't look for help. Jesus says, I've... I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He didn't mean that there were people who are righteous who didn't need repentance. He was saying, I, I can't call you to righteousness or to repentance if you believe you don't need repentance. A physician only heals the sick, right? If you don't believe you're sick, you won't go. We have a friend that we visited in the hospital on Friday <coughs> up in Creighton. She had pneumonia. She'd been in the hospital since Tuesday. Dear sister in the Lord, she loves the Lord, but she hates the hospital. And so she kept looking at things on the internet all day on Tuesday, trying to figure out ways to avoid going to the hospital. Her husband got home from work, took one look at her and said, you're going to the hospital. She's got asthma and had gone into pneumonia. And she was in, getting into pretty rough shape. All the wishing, all the denying didn't change the fact that she was sick. But neither did it bring healing to her because she wouldn't acknowledge it. It's only by the mercy of God, ultimately, that the, that the Spirit of God opens the blind eyes that we have and lets us see our need. And when we see it, we shouldn't be afraid of it because Jesus came to meet all of those 20 things and, and 58 more that I found. I'll get them posted on Facebook. In fact, I think I already did post them on Facebook. I'll get them posted. In contrast, those who acknowledge their need and put their faith in him receive from him true riches, real gold, the kingdom, and eternal life. We receive white garments, the righteousness of Christ. We receive ISAV, which means understanding and clarity and a vision of what God has said and what God's done. If you're in a position where you've denied his supply, stop. Stop. 
Stop pretending you don't need him. Stop pretending you figured those one or two things out. And, and now I'm, I'm set now. Understand that your relationship with Christ isn't about you coming to him as a needy person, him satisfying all of, all of your needs permanently, and then you going about your way. Your relationship with, with Christ is you coming in your need and remaining needy as long as you're in this, this life. And finding that he is continually faithful. Finding that he is your continual supply. Father, we thank you for your love for us. I ask, Lord, that for those of us who do know you and are tempted at times to either deny our need or even get convinced by the enemy that we shouldn't, need you. Help us to understand that our relationship with you really is one of need. You weren't our shepherd just once. You don't feed us just once. You don't love us just once. You don't comfort us just once. Teach us to come to you with everything. Lord, if if there are any here who don't know you, convict them of their need. Open their eyes. Show them that they're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked without you. Grant them the faith to believe in the Son of God laid down on the cross for our sins, buried and raised from the dead for our justification. And Lord, for those who are are tempted to ebb and flow, as we all are at times, give them the encouragement as you encourage the Laodiceans to repent of the self-sufficiency, to repent of the self-regard and pride, and to turn to you. Teach us all, Lord, that it's better to be before you in desperation than to be away from you in satisfaction. And if, Lord, what we need is to to keep us close to you, to keep our eyes on you and our faith in you, is more need than we have, then bring that need that we would be reminded daily of who you are. We thank you that you are are our sufficiency. We thank you, Lord, that you are our prophet and our priest, and our king. We thank you for all of this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.